You know, I did not look through this email carefully and just click on the link because I saw, oh great, it's an internship opportunity from the school and you know, it will be, be because it was sent to my UNC email account. Coming up on Carolina Connection, scammers are trying to target UNC students with bogus emails. Good morning, I'm Henry Taylor. And I'm Sierra Pfeiffer. Also this week, the U.S. Senate unanimously passes a resolution condemning UNC's chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine. A university committee creates AI guidelines for students, embracing the new technology rather than shying away from it. And a 48-year-old Halloween mainstay returns to campus for a sold-out performance. Sitting quietly in a theater is not how you watch Rocky. It's a more boisterous event. From the UNC Husband School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us. The U.S. Senate Thursday unanimously passed a resolution that condemns anti-Semitism on college campuses. The resolution specifically mentions the UNC chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine. It says the group is among several nationwide that have, quote, praised and justified the actions of Hamas. The resolution was introduced by Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, a prominent Republican. On the Senate floor, he gave examples of the demonstrations on college campuses that the resolution condemns. On Tuesday of this week, just two or three miles from where we stand now on the floor of the United States Senate at the George Washington University, pro-Hamas students projected onto the side of the university library various anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, pro-genocide slogans, including glory to our martyrs. Hawley said that colleges are not doing enough to dissuade these demonstrations. Clearly, these institutions have failed these students, which is why we need to speak with moral clarity. This is a moment for us to say that genocide is wrong, that terrorist attacks against Jews are wrong, UNC's chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine held a campus demonstration after the Hamas attacks on Israel. They called for the U.S. to stop supporting Israel, and protesters carried signs that said things like, no occupation and Zionism will not win. They expressed outrage over Israeli airstrikes that killed civilians in Gaza. We reached out to the UNC Students for Justice in Palestine chapter for reaction to the Senate vote but they did not respond. October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and UNC's IT office says students are among those who need to be aware. Over the past few months, several students have received emails in their UNC inbox that are phishing scams. The messages hope to trick students into providing sensitive information. And as Tianyi Wang reports, sometimes they succeed. It was a bustling afternoon on campus, with students hardly making their way to classes, chatting and laughing with each other. Everything was normal until Jerish's phone buzzed with an Outlook email notification. She is a junior majoring in business administration. He received an email titled Work and Study Position in the afternoon, which offered a part-time internship position with Unicide. Yeah, I can actually still find the email right now in my UNC inbox, actually. Let me take a look. I believe I can search it by searching work and study. Let's see. There we go, found it. So this email reads, as a result of the recent COVID-19 pandemic and ongoing war in Europe, 
UNICEF is offering jobs to help affected countries and provide part-time jobs for students to work remotely. Kindly follow the link below for job formation and application process. She recounts how he had fallen into the trap and was subsequently scammed by the email. You know, I did not look through this email carefully and just click on the link because I saw, oh great, it's an internship opportunity from the school and you know, it was be- be- because it was sent to my UNC email account. I just clicked the link, opened it and texted my basic information to the site. And I got scanned while creating the application account password because I remember I I, th- I think I was I was typing the same password from an onion to the the exact same application. Then the fake job emails were sent to many other UNC email accounts, and my account was locked due to this activity. Unfortunately, Xu's experience was not an isolated incident. Cole Shelton, a sophomore student majoring in advertising and public relations, says his girlfriend even faced financial losses due to a phishing scam. She got scammed, I think, like $500 or something at one point uh, this semester. Um, luckily, she was able to get it, like refunded by her bank, but there was an internship of some sort, a fake internship that like asked her to send money to somebody. In response to these cyber threats, UNC's Information Security Office, in collaboration with the UNC School of Medicine IT and the ITS Service Desk, marked Cybersecurity Awareness Month with all month-long activities, events, and resources to engage, educate, and motivate students. Paul Rivers, the Chief Information Security Officer, says the Awareness Month aims to simplify and demystify cybersecurity, making it more practical and approachable for students. Activities ranged from interactive events like Capture the Flag simulations to insightful panel talks by industry professionals. Being able to just talk with people about what do we do, why do we do it, to be able to do things like Capture the Flag so we can see why certain activities are are valuable in terms of safeguarding ourselves, safeguarding university data. Despite the university's efforts to raise awareness, the battle against cyber threats remains complex. Rivers says that the open nature of communication within educational institutions like UNC makes it challenging to identify and counter potential scams effectively. When an email is a scam, it requires a fair degree of sophistication. And that's something that is um, partly a, a consequence of just how email works. However, the Information Security Office remains committed to maintaining an open environment while strengthening cybersecurity measures, aligning their efforts with recognized industry security standards. Unfortunately, the best thing that we can do is just be vigilant. It just requires repetition and remembering that when we see these emails and they're asking us to do something, it seems too good to be true. We need to find ways outside of email, for example, to validate that what we're being asked to do in email is legitimate. In the ever-involving landscape of digital threats, Rivers says Cybersecurity Awareness Month serves as a crucial annual reminder of the importance of cyber vigilance and education. In Chapel Hill, I'm Tian Yuang. One of the things that stopped happening during the pandemic was in-person campus tours for prospective college students. Now they're back with some changes. UNC Now is encouraging high school students and their parents to ask more questions during their visit to campus. Reporter Sia Zhang went out on tour to see what's new. Andrew Spartley is a senior Tar Heel who wants to become an environmental lawyer, but he has another identity on campus. He has been given tours to prospective students since his sophomore year. Yeah, so this right here is Polk Place. 
so it's kind of our main quad here on campus especially when it's a little warmer out or maybe it's been winter for so long and <laughs> on the work day Sparley comes and shows up a little bit before the scheduled time he likes how flexible this job is when people can pick up different shifts when things happen generally a tour block is around two hours and we have four different blocks during the day they really work with you and your class schedule so i mean you might have some people that give two to three tours a week some may give one each day starting from jackson hall a tour route goes through cop residence hall student union the pit the quad and finally the bell tower first riley says he doesn't just throw a bunch of information the campus tour is not like a regular one. He likes to tell fun facts about different places. For instance, myth of the old well. Legend has it though that if you take a sip of its water on the first day of class, you get a 4.0 GPA for that semester. Personally, I cannot confirm nor deny whether I've gotten a 4.0 after drinking from its water, but it's definitely a fun tradition to believe in and take part in, uh, especially because that first day of class, there's this whole line that happens. Every time he says how UNC students got free tickets for most of the sports events on campus, he brings up UNC's story with its longtime rival, Duke. One of the biggest traditions surrounding that team is that every time we beat Duke or win a national championship, we rush Franklin Street. I remember during my sophomore year when we beat Duke in Coach K's last home game, there was estimated to be around 15,000 people on that street corner. Isaac Bell is a senior assistant director of undergraduate admission. He has been working with Sparley for a couple of years now. Bell says that before each tour, there's a 45-minute information session. The admission office added a new Q&A student panel this year, where student tour guide sits down and answers questions from the tours. So it really gives the chance for some audience participation and to get some questions that might be helpful for the group answered. But I would say adding that student panel and really making it more um, of a conversation with our visitors is definitely something that's a little bit newer than it has been in previous years. Sophia Monaco is one of the prospective students. She visited UNC all the way from Wisconsin. She's interested in UNC mainly because she's a big fan of sports. So I like like basketball and stuff. So and like UNC is a big basketball school. So that's kind of like what made me interested in like starting to look into it as a possible place to go to school. The thing that left her a heavy impression is the style of UNC buildings. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. I think it's a pretty campus and I like the kind of like old look that it has, like the buildings and stuff and the red brick. I thought it was really cool. Some people may think college visits are a little bit scary and some think that campus tours are just selling people to school. However, Sparley says having this program each year is important. We might be the first college they tour um, and so our job is really to not specifically sell them on the university, but to just kind of give them an idea of what it would be like to attend and see if they could see their self coming here. There will be tour opportunities in November as well. In Chapel Hill, I'm Siajin. A UNC faculty and staff committee is out with a set of guidelines to help students and professors use AI. It addresses ways that AI can be used in the classroom, ethically and productively. Keenan Flagler, business school professor Mark McNeely, is a member of the Generative AI Committee. He talked with Carolina Connections' Savannah Gunter. So today we're talking a little bit about the new Generative AI guidance that's come out for UNC. Um, can you tell us about your role in the creation of that? So the UNC Generative AI Committee uh, basically was composed of all the academic schools, School of Medicine, School of of business, right, school of law, the college, of course, um, and our 
task was really to do two main things. Um, one was to provide guidance on the use of uh, generative AI, ChatGPT, and all the other potential uh, applications around it and like that, um, as well as provide training, right, and familiarization with what generative AI is. And can you give me an example of how you've used AI in your own teaching? Yeah, so um, my guidance to my students is that they should be using it wherever possible and, and then document it, which is consistent with the guidance that the committee came out. I want my students to be able to learn how to use it. So, for example, I have them do a sales call. That's their final, right? They have to, that's what I teach a professional selling class. And you have to generate a set of questions, right, for the sales call that you want to ask the customer. And I asked, said, hey, you should really be using generative AI or chat GPT, whatever your favorite version is. Um, to generate some of those questions, right? Um, but then you really need to think about which are the right questions based on what uh, you know the, 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 what you've learned in the class, right? And so this is and this represents the philosophy we had in the committee, which was AI should help you think, not think for you. So what would you say are the biggest challenges that AI presents in an academic setting? Um, well, the academic integrity one, right? So there's a there's a downside. From an academic integrity standpoint, um, you know we want to make sure again people aren't just you know entering you know questions they get from the instructor and then copying pasting it in right. That's not that's not the purpose of why you're in a university. So we want them to use it because this is a skill that employers are going to demand. I mean you know people are using it now, um, but we want them to use it um, correctly. Another challenge actually is. You know, everyone thinks all the students are using it, but I would tell you a lot of students aren't using it. Um, there's a there's an inertia there, and it's not just students, it's faculty. I mean, it's everybody across the board. I mean, when this came out, I thought, man, is it going to be old news? Will everybody be using this by July? And, you know, there's it, they're not, right? There's a lot of students where they kind of heard about it, maybe they played with it a little bit, but they're really not leveraging it like they can. There's a saying in the in this generative AI world, you're not going to be replaced by AI, you're going to be replaced by someone who knows AI. Now we talked a little bit about the implementation of AI guidance, but is there anything else you'd like to add about this process? Um, I, the one thing I would add about our committee that I think is is important for people to know is, you know, it was a committee that worked well across all 15 schools, right? Um, it was created with the support of the provost and the dean, so our, our leadership recognizes this is important. Um, and we acted, you know, people, you know, kind of laugh or say, hey, universities can't, committees can't do anything or they take forever and say, we, we got this whole job done in, in a few months by working on a very tight schedule, meeting regularly, farming workout, distributing workout to subcommittees coming back, making decisions and, and producing deliverables and having a website so that when faculty came back and students came back in the fall, everything was ready for them. So the idea that, you know, university committees can't work quickly, I think is, 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 has been proven wrong, at least by this committee. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for being here today. I really, really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. Business professor Mark McNeely talked with Carolina Connections' Savannah Gunter. You're listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student-produced newscast. I'm Henry Taylor. And I'm Sierra Pfeiffer. Carborough resident Tom Smith wants to bring worms to your neighborhood. 
He's leading an initiative to promote vermicomposting. That's using worms to produce high-quality compost. W.H. Hayes has more. It's a breezy fall afternoon in a Carborough Co. housing neighborhood, and the gardens are in bloom despite the growing October chill. These gardens, like the ones in your backyard, need the nutrients in their soil replenished. And the people in this community know just the guy. Yeah, oh yeah. For nine years, Tom Smith has led a vermicompost initiative, or using worms to create high quality compost. The goal is to keep kitchen scraps out of the landfill. It also, it is one of the best soil amendments uh, we have. And when we compost our uh, kitchen scraps, our gardeners are very happy with that. Vermicomposting is feeding kitchen scraps to worms, then using the resulting worm poop as a sort of fertilizer. However, Smith prefers the term soil amendment, as he says it does more than just fertilize. It enriches soil with microorganisms, and that's a very big thing. It makes soil more alive and replaces less sustainable soil amendments. It's a far better uh, soil amendment than regular compost. Due to the benefits, compost is often referred to as black gold. Even when worms aren't involved, the stuff can be extremely effective. But Kyle Parker, the coordinator of Edible Campus UNC, says vermicompost is better. The end product, the worm castings is what they uh, call them, uh, is, is a more nutrient-dense byproduct than just traditional compost. So, uh, you know, if you had to choose between the two products, almost any gardener would choose uh, the vermicompost uh, because, like I said, it's just a more nutrient-dense product. Additionally, vermicomposting works on a much smaller scale. Regular composting requires heaps of kitchen scraps and tender care, but you can vermicompost with just a little bit and then largely leave it to its devices. You can do it in a smaller space. Like I said, you could have a little thing in like a closet, you know, all you need is a little Rubbermaid bin or something like that. Like a traditional composting system usually is requiring some sort of manual labor in terms of uh, like mixing the compost to get air in there. Um, you don't have to do that with vermiculture, so I, I guess it's probably a little less labor intensive in that way. Smith's vermicomposting organization has made immense contributions to his neighborhood's community gardens, but he also wants to pass it on to other neighborhoods. I'm 76 now. I want my life to end on a high note, um, and I'd hate to see this project not go on after uh, I'm not able to do it anymore. Smith recently received a Carborough Town grant to hold workshops on vermiculture. The first one will be November 11th. Blink, and your neighborhood garden can be the next one crawling with some helpful little friends. In Carborough, I'm WHAs. Now turning to sports, we are joined by Carolina Connections' Kinsley Brady and the Daily Tar Heels sports managing editor, Lucas Tomei, to talk about UNC football's unexpected loss to UVA last weekend. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Henry. Lucas, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. After being a double-digit favorite and starting the season at a historic high, the Hills just took their first loss of the season to Virginia, which was a 1-5 team. What does this tell us about UNC's team? Yeah, I think, you know, I don't want to overreact and say that UNC isn't a great or a good football team because that 6-0 start was meaningful. But I think this does sort of um, bring expectations for this team 
down a peg. If anyone was thinking that, you know, this was maybe UNC's team of destiny, you know, they would go on an undefeated run, maybe make their first college football playoff. I think those expectations have been tempered a lot more. Um, but, you know, this is a team that they set their goal over the summer as making the ACC title and winning the ACC championship this year. And that is still very much in reach for this team. With a lot of criticism from fans and the media, how did the Heels get over this loss? Yeah, I mean, they talked about it in the pressers this week after that uh, sort of trap game upset loss against Virginia. Uh, they just need to put all of their sights on Georgia Tech and the rest of the season. Um, one thing Mac Brown loves to say is you can't let a loss beat you twice. Um, and I think that's something that you've maybe it seemed like has gotten in the Tar Heels head in seasons past. Uh, where, you know, the team would take one bad loss, one surprising loss, and it would start a snowball effect where, you know, you'd saw last season, the team started nine and one, they lost their last four games of the season. Uh, Mac Brown is really going to be emphasizing to uh, this squad that they can't let this bad loss against Virginia uh, affect the rest of the season going forward. Previously, there was talk that UNC might be a national contender team in the NCAA playoffs. How does this impact postseason play? Yeah, so I think college football is one of those weird sports where, you know, the season is so short and the expectations are so high where one loss can seem like the end of the world to some fan bases. But in terms of making it through to the ACC championship and getting to a really good bowl game that people are still gonna, going to have their eyes on, uh, you know, potentially playing for a New Year's Six Bowl. That's still very much in reach for this team. Thanks for joining us, Lucas. Of course. Thanks for having me. That was Kinsley Brady and the Daily Tar Heels' Lucas Tomei. For decades now, the Rocky Horror Picture Show has been a Halloween phenomenon. If you've seen the movie in the theater, you know audiences will interact with the show by dressing up, throwing props, and sometimes shouting obscenities. In Chapel Hill, the Popper players put their own spin on the movie, as they act out the scenes on the Varsity Theater screen. Carolina Connection's Samantha Hoffman reports. On Monday, nearly 900 students waited hours in line to see the student production of Rocky Horror. I was there for almost three and a half hours, and I think it was definitely worth it because I do have friends in the show this year and I've never gone before. Junior Kyle Murphy was one of them. Pretty cool though to see everyone so excited and hyped. It is hard to describe Rocky to someone unfamiliar, though student director Maddie Ugon had an answer. If you've never seen Rocky, it is a queer cacophony of fun. Ugon has directed the student-run production of Rocky Horror for the past three years, but each year, Ugon says, is a different process. I tell my cast members to have their personality shine through each of these characters, all the creative decisions that we make. Um, how we interact with each other, how the ensemble interacts with the audience. is also heavily dependent on the energy that the audience comes in with. Rocky Horror tells the story of an engaged couple who find themselves in the home of a mad transvestite scientist who has built a Frankenstein-like man. The story includes aliens, twisty relationships, humor, and sex. The show includes actors like UNC's Russell Harrington, who mimics a character on screen, as well as in an ensemble, who interact with audience members directly or through call and response, like... Brad's a... Brad's an Janet's a... To prepare for the show, Harrington says the cast focuses on watching and mirroring the film and testing out audience calls. It's a lot of 
looking back at a big projector, figuring out where you're supposed to be, and then watching the ensemble work their magic because they make it so much fun. The UNC Popper Players Theater Group have produced the show for nine years. However, the history of the story spans much longer. The original production of Rocky Horror was a musical which took place in London in 1973 for seven years. The following Los Angeles and Broadway debuts had shorter runs, but received a Tony nomination and was adapted across six continents. The musical became a film in 1975, which morphed into the hybrid theatrical production and film screening it is today. While incredibly bold and unprecedented for its time, Harrington feels the film still stands unique today due to its... It's a movie that's meant to be, to like have fun with. Like you're not, sitting quietly in a theater is not how you watch Rocky. It's a more boisterous event. Rocky Horror is often followed for its representation of queer identities and sexual liberation. There's a lot of metaphors. Although it's largely silly, it's also one of the first of its kind to be unapologetically queer, but not have that necessarily be the center. It's just these characters are the way they are, and they're just unapologetically themselves, and they have so much fun. Ugon says you should watch the show if you want to have the time of your life. But if you are new to the show, beware. New attendees are labeled as virgins, literally, with the red V written in lipstick on the forehead. Virgins of the show must participate on stage in pre-show games. The Ugon couldn't disclose exactly what happens. They did laugh about what's in store. Murphy is one of those first-timers. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Definitely maybe a little scared, but not really, because I know it's just going to be a fun, exciting time. UNC Popper players will perform Friday and Saturday at 9.30 p.m. and midnight at the Varsity Theater. Tickets are currently sold out. In Chapel Hill, I'm Samantha Hoffman. From haunted inns to playful spirits, Chapel Hill has its share of ghostly legends. Anthony DeHart toured the town to uncover the stories behind one of these paranormal presences and to see what goes bump in the night. Halloween is the time of year when everyone loves a good ghost story. It's also the busy season for Andrew Nason, a local historian and owner-proprietor of Triangle Walking Tours. On a quiet October evening, we met at the Forest Theater for his seasonal specialty, a walking tour of haunted sites around Chapel Hill. Uh, there's a few different places we can go. Um, Carolina Inn, that is probably the most well-known of them. As we trek towards the Carolina Inn, Nason tells me some of the history behind the legend. The story revolves around the life and death of William Jaycox in 1965. Now there is one man who stays there, a UNC professor, who was uh, well known for his work in treating hookworm and trying to eradicate hookworm in India. He stayed at the Carolina Inn during the last part of his life, and so the stories have really permeated since his death. Um, it's something that hasn't gone away and that isn't really going to go away. Thankfully, Nason says the ghost of the Carolina Inn is more silly than sinister. He likes to play the occasional a practical joke on them, whether that be, you know, locking them out of their rooms and making them go get a key from the front desk, or whether it be, you know, opening or closing a door or turning off lights, that sort of deal. It's probably one of the best known ghost stories in the Chapel Hill area. 
Isaiah Marvis Singleton, a front desk clerk at the Carolina Inn, says guests regularly come in asking about the legend. We usually get a bunch of pilots that come in to the hotel and they usually mention, they like ask us like, yeah, we've heard this place is haunted. Like, where's the most haunted room? Those looking for a spookier stay often ask to bed down in room 256, one of the rooms where Jaycox lived before his death. Singleton says these visitors often report visitations of a different kind. People have said that they've heard um, noises in their rooms. I mean, I haven't seen anything personally, but I always love to listen to people just mention, you know, that they heard something and they were scared. Um, so I think definitely, like, there could be some ghosts in here, especially because so many people say it. So, yeah. While many people fear paranormal stories, my intrepid tour guide, Nason, does not. Ghost stories are just the stories of people who died. And if they were benevolent people in their life, like I think most people are, why would they be malevolent in death? For Nason, these legends represent a fun way to interact with the history of a space or particular location. I think that ghost stories are more interesting as well as entertaining if they are based on local legend and that there's something true about them even if you're not necessarily a true believer in ghosts. If somebody takes a ghost tour here in Chapel Hill, that they are learning something about the town, that they are learning something about the culture and legends that permeate this historic area. Nason says he's not sure if he believes all of the paranormal stories he's heard, but one thing is for sure. I ain't afraid of no ghosts. In Chapel Hill, I'm Anthony DeHart. And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Kevin Paris. I'm Sierra Pfeiffer. And I'm Henry Taylor. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and X at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening.